Well, good morning, friends. It's good to see you. My name is David, and I serve here at Trinity as lead pastor. And uh, what a week we had, huh? Weather-wise, beautiful week, lots of uh, sunshine, lots of time to do things outdoors, get things done around the house. Uh, this week, my wife stained and painted the deck in our backyard. And before you judge me for not including myself in that sentence, she does not trust me and my painting skills enough to let me touch it. So she didn't want me helping at all. However, she let our seven-year-old help paint. So that tells you a little something about how she views my, my painting skills. I found a secret to life is if you're not good at anything, no one asks you for help. So uh, it's kind of been my, my MO. But I hope that you enjoyed this week. I'm glad that you're here. I know that, uh, sorry for saying this out loud, I know this is the final month of summer. And a lot of our church family and church friends are traveling on vacation, doing different things. So if you're watching online later, we hope you're having a great time with your family and friends, wherever you are. And thanks for making this service uh, a part of your week. So we are in week three of our series from the life of Joseph. And my daughters, I have a 13-year-old, a 10-year-old, and a 7-year-old. They love hearing stories about my life when I was their age. It's just fascinating to them. They, they're so interested in who daddy was when he was their age. And I actually remember loving the same thing with my parents, hearing my mom and dad talk about what they were like when they were kids, when they were teenagers. And one story that my dad would tell that was my favorite was, you know, my dad was one of four siblings, and uh, they grew up in a very strict Roman Catholic household in Rochester. And so there were some very clear rules, things you did and things you didn't do, a very high moral standard in their house. And one thing you never did was you never cursed. You just didn't do it in their house. And one day they were all in the kitchen getting ready for dinner. And my dad's youngest sister was at the stove preparing the food and she accidentally touched a hot pan. You ever accidentally touch a hot pan? Sometimes the things that come out of us are not wonderful in those moments. And sure enough, when she touched the hot pan, she cursed in front of her whole family. And it was like time stopped. And everybody was like, uh-oh, what next? And without hesitation, she turned to her mom and dad and said, the devil made me do it. <laughs> and I guess my grandpa and grandma found that so funny that she ended up not getting in trouble. So it's a little trick there if you, if you get in trouble. The devil made me do it. But as I was uh, thinking about this story that we're looking at together this morning where Joseph is tempted, he enters into significant temptation, I thought, you know, how many times in our lives do we do things and we look back and we're like, who made me do that? What made me do that? Why did I make that decision? And at this point in the story, Joseph, remember, Joseph was the chosen son, beloved by his father Jacob, but hated by his other brothers. So his other brothers want to kill him, but instead of killing him, they sell him to Midianite human traffickers who bring him to Egypt, where he now, at the beginning of chapter 39, he's been sold to a man named Potiphar. And Potiphar is a pretty high up ruler in the Egyptian kingdom. He's a commander. He's over men. And Joseph enters this household just as a regular servant, but very quickly he, he climbs the ladder to where he is second in command in Potiphar's household. Joseph is so influential in such a positive way that Potiphar looks at him and says, I want to give you control over everything in my life. And so Joseph was over his finances, over his household, over his property. Potiphar trusted Joseph. And the reason why Joseph had this much blessing is not just because he was talented, gifted, good-looking. He was all of those things. But it was because he was part of the bloodline of the, the family that God had made a covenant with. God had made a covenant with his great-great-great-grandfather Abraham. And then that blessing upon Abraham was passed to Isaac, to Jacob, 
And now that blessing is upon Joseph, which is a great reminder that we serve a God who keeps his promises through the generations. He's faithful. And so Joseph, everything he touched turns to gold to the point where Potiphar says, you can have everything in this house, control over it, oversight over it, except my wife. And this is where we pick up the story in Genesis 39, the second half of verse 6. It says, Joseph was a very handsome and well-built Young man, come on, how many of you can relate with that verse? Handsome and, and, and sort of built young man. Um, and Potiphar's wife soon began to look at him lustfully. Come and sleep with me, she demanded. But Joseph refused. Look, he told her, my master, he's speaking of Potiphar, my master trusts me with everything in his entire household. No one here has more authority than I do. He has held back nothing from me except you because you are his wife. How could I do such a wicked thing? It would be a great sin against God. She kept putting pressure on Joseph day after day, but he refused to sleep with her. And he kept out of her way as much as possible. He's just trying to stay away. Verse 11, one day, however, no one else was around when he went in to do his work. She came and grabbed him by his cloak, demanding, come on, sleep with me. Joseph tore himself away, but he left his cloak in her hand as he ran from the house. We're going to learn three things this morning about temptation. We're going to learn about the nature of temptation, the danger of temptation, and the way out, the way out of temptation. And we read this story, the nature of temptation is pretty clear. The first thing that we see is that temptation is strategic. Temptation comes at you when you're often vulnerable. You know, temptation often comes, to, comes at us when we are alone. Joseph is alone here. He's stranded from his father, his family, and his faith. At this point, he's about 200 miles away from his family. It might as well have been the other side of the globe. And this woman comes and finds him. He's alone. He's isolated. And often, temptation finds us when we are alone and isolated and outside of community. And one of my great concerns as a pastor during these past 18 months is the way in which we as a people have had to isolate from each other, whether it's been intentional, unintentional, necessary, unnecessary, physical, social, emotional. Most of us have experienced some level of isolation in the last 18 months that has been previously unique to our lives. And one of my concerns is that when we get out of the rhythm of being in community together, we make ourselves vulnerable to temptation. When we're alone. Temptation is strategic. It also comes at us sometimes when we are at our lowest, when we're at our weakest. Joseph here, I, I, I think about Joseph's life at this point. I wonder if like every night before he fell asleep, if he replayed the events of the last time he was with his family in his head, thinking about his brothers beating him and stripping him of his robe and throwing him in that pit. I wonder if Joseph at night stayed awake thinking, what did they tell my dad? What, is, what, is my, what do my dad and mom think happened to me? Will I see them ever again? Is my dad, who was elderly, is he even still alive? Joseph, in many ways, was in a very low point in his life. And sometimes when we're at our lowest, we are more susceptible to turn to things to give us something to live for, to give us something to hope in. And we look at temptation that comes along, and Joseph could have said, life's pretty bad right now. I mean, at least this woman wants me. My own family didn't want me. She wants me. Why not? And this is the way temptation works. Sometimes it finds us at our lowest. But inversely, sometimes temptation finds us at our strongest. When we're actually on a mountaintop and we're feeling pretty good. And actually, Joseph's doing great. 
I mean, he's, he's been promoted from just sort of regular servant in the house to second in command. And, you know, one thing that happens is that sometimes temptation doesn't just come in the forms of adversity. Sometimes temptation comes in the form of prosperity. Actually, prosperity, how many of you have learned just by observing the world that sometimes prosperity and success can do more damage to the human soul than adversity and struggle? And, and uh, there is a man named Thomas Carlyle who said, adversity is hard, yes, but for one man who can stand prosperity, there's a hundred men who can stand adversity. And what he's saying is that success sometimes has a way of setting. Joseph could have thought, I'm doing so great, I'm, I'm killing it, and I, you know, I'm entitled to this because I'm so successful. God's blessing me, and, and he's giving me this opportunity. And sometimes, actually, at the most successful moments of our lives, we're, we're very vulnerable to temptation because we're doing so great and we think that we're in a good spot. You know, the, the danger of success and the reason why success can ruin a person as much as failure is success often leads to pride, to self-reliance, to forgetting God, and to a sense of entitlement. And temptation is strategic. The second thing we learn here is that temptation is persistent. Um, it keeps coming. So Potiphar's wife she didn't just try to tempt Joseph once. It says in the text, she came day after day after day. And temptation is the same way. It doesn't give up. It keeps coming after us. Just because we had victory today over temptation doesn't mean that tomorrow that same temptation is not. How many, you don't have to raise your hand, but just, just ask yourself, how many of us have struggled really for most of our adult lives with the same basic temptations? The temptation to be seen, to be approved, to be accepted, to have things that we shouldn't have, to do things that we shouldn't do, to bring into our hearts things that we shouldn't be pulling into our hearts. And so we have this regular rhythm of temptation because temptation comes after us again and again and again. In fact, when, when Satan tempts Jesus in Luke chapter 4, Jesus overcomes the temptation through the power of God's word. But in Luke 4.13, it says that when the devil had finished all his tempting, he left until an opportune time. It didn't say the devil gave up and was like, ah, that Jesus, I mean, he is the son of God. Like, there's no way I'm going to get him. The devil's like, all right, I'll find a better time. I'll find another time. And thank God for the grace that he's given us to overcome temptation in our lives. And any time that we're able to take our thoughts captive and we're able to have victory in our lives over sin, it's because of the grace of God. But the truth is, is that the enemy of your soul so desperately wants to destroy your soul and destroy your life that he will not stop coming after you. Temptation is persistent. And then the third thing we see about the nature of temptation is that temptation is aggressive. It's aggressive. This woman is aggressive. It escalates from a passive invitation, come sleep with me, to an aggressive act, an aggressive attack almost, where she grabs his cloak and says, come and be with me. And temptation is an aggressive thing. And, and in response, we have to be willing to be aggressive against temptation, against sin. John Owens said that you either are killing your sin or your sin is killing you. This is exactly how he said it. He said, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. And I know that sounds kind of violent, but we have to be violent against sin in our lives. We can't be passive. Sometimes we're passive when we sit back and say, well, when the temptation finds me, then I'll do something about it. But you know, there's things that you and I in wisdom can do now to keep ourselves out of situations where we know temptation will be. 
If, if, if someone knows that there's a specific area, a specific environment, a specific group of friends where when you're there that temptation overtakes you, then sometimes the most wise thing that you can do is to avoid those situations and those circumstances. In 1 Corinthians 10, 13, uh, Paul says that there's no temptation that has taken us that, that is not common to all of us, but God provides a way out of temptation. However, sometimes I believe the way out of temptation is earlier than we think. The way out is over here, and we pass by that, and then we get too far into it, and it feels like we can't get out. God will provide a way out of temptation, but sometimes it requires us to be intentional and aggressive and even violent against sin. Joseph didn't hang around. He didn't consider it. He didn't underestimate temptation. He didn't entertain temptation. Did you notice it said he tried to be nowhere where she was? He knew that that was temptation. Joseph's a 20-year-old, full-blooded young man. This is a legit temptation for him. He's alone. He could have made lots of excuses. We're going to talk about that in a minute. But he stayed away. He knew what was at stake. A quick important note I want to make before we move forward is this. Just because you're being tempted doesn't mean you're out of God's will, right? Right? Joseph is smack dab in the middle of God's will, and yet he is being tempted. And sometimes when we're tempted and tested in life, we're, we, we have the tendency to look back and say, oh, I probably took a left where I should have taken a right. And the reason why I'm being tempted or tested is because I messed up back there. Don't do that to yourself. You could be right in the middle of God's will, and there's still going to be temptations and struggles and tests that will come and find you. But the other thing is, is just because you're being tempted, it doesn't mean you have sinned. Those are two different things. Being tempted is not the same of actually, as actually sinning. And we know this because Jesus Christ, the perfect, sinless Son of God, was tempted, yet he lived without sin. In fact, the author of Hebrews says it very clear in Hebrews 4.15, that Jesus understands every weakness of ours because he was tempted in every way that we are, but he did not sin. So the nature of temptation, it's strategic, it's persistent, it's aggressive. And if that doesn't sound dangerous enough, that's actually not the danger of temptation. The danger of temptation is something else. Now, when I, when I think about this story, I, I put myself in Joseph's shoes and I think, what, could he have, what excuses could he have given himself? You know, he could have said something like this. God obviously has forgotten me. You know, this God of my father's, this God that my father Jacob talks about. Where was that God when my brothers were beating me up and throwing me into the pit. And where is that God now? Here I am in Egypt. They worship different gods. He could have told them, forget it. If God forgot me, then I'm going to forget God and I'm going to live life the way that I want to live. He easily could have said, said that. He could have said, I've tried so hard. I've said no to her a dozen times. God, you've seen her. You know, I've said, I've said no every day that I can, but, but like, I can't keep saying no. I'm just a human. He could have said that. He could have said, hey, I deserve this. I mean, I've been through a lot. <laughs> I've, I've been through a lot, and, and finally there's something. He could have said, my, 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 my family didn't want me, but this woman wants me. Finally someone. And this is the danger of temptation. The greatest danger of temptation is not what's happening around us, but it's what's happening inside of us at the moment of temptation. The greatest danger of temptation are the excuses that we make and that we believe and the lies that we tell ourselves because as human beings, every single one of us has a propensity, uh, a tendency, and an expertise ability to lie to ourselves. I've heard this said, and I think it's true. No one in the entirety of your life has lied to you more than yourself. The Bible 
sort of affirms that by saying that the heart is desperately wicked. We don't even know our own hearts. And when temptation surrounds us, yes, the danger is out there, but the greatest danger is in here. What do we tell ourselves? And and the danger being that we believe ourselves, our feelings, our emotions, our desires, and our circumstances more than we believe God's word. So we look at the circumstances of our life and we look at how everybody else is living their life and we say, listen, it's the 21st century. Come on, catch up, Bible. (laughs) We're, We're way past all that stuff in the Bible. And so we look at our society and our culture and our circumstances and we say things like, if they say that it's okay, then it must be okay. And we begin to believe that instead of believing the timeless word of God. We begin to believe things like, if I feel it, it must be good for me. If, if I want it, then surely I was created to have it. And we, we begin to believe things like, that won't hurt me. No one will, you know, Joseph could have said to himself, no one will ever know I'll never see my dad and my mom and my brother alone. If I sleep with this woman, it's not getting back to them. There's no Facebook. No one's going to post about this. No one's going to learn about this. Potiphar won't know him. That Potiphar guy's a jerk anyway, so he kind of has this coming. If he loved her, then she wouldn't be coming after. Right? All these things that he could have been telling himself. And the truth is, is that we were, we're really, really good at, at having those conversations within our hearts and excusing and justifying our lack of obedience and our lack of trust in Jesus. And that's the danger of temptation. We believe ourselves, our feelings, our desires, our circumstances. We believe the message the world tells us more than we believe God's word. And here's what happens when we do that. We end up with a distorted, perverted version of God. And we think we're serving God, but we're serving a version of God that we've created. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said it this way. He said, in our members, it's just an old-fashioned way of saying in ourselves, in our bodies, there is a slumbering inclination towards desire, which is both sudden and fierce. I love the wordplay here. I love what he does. It's a slumbering inclination. You ever feel like temptation is just this slow, steady drip? It's the slippery slope. It's a slumbering inclination. Doesn't seem dangerous, but then it's sudden and fierce. With irresistible power, desire seizes mastery over the flesh. All at once, a secret smoldering fire is kindled. The flesh burns and is in flames. And look what he says. He says, it makes no difference whether we're talking about sexual desire, ambition, vanity, desire for revenge, love of fame, power, greed for money. At this moment, God is quite unreal to us. He loses all reality, and only desire for the creature is real. The powers of clear discrimination and of decision-making are taken from us. And this is what really jumped out at me. At the moment of temptation, when we give ourselves to that which is tempting to us, God becomes unreal to us. We don't see him to be real. We don't see him to be present. We don't see him to be enough. We don't see him to have thoughts that are higher than our thoughts and ways that are higher than our ways. So many people serve a God that believes everything they believe. Isn't that interesting? When's the last time the God of the scriptures confronted you with something that you actually don't like? You sort of wish the Bible didn't say. You sort of wish it wasn't true. If you have a God that doesn't confront you on different areas of your life, you don't have a true God. You have a God of your own making. 
The God of Scripture has things to say to our lives about the ways in which we live our lives. And temptation offers what seems to be great, but actually in the process of taking it, it captures us and it destroys us. I remember this story years ago I heard and I've told before about the way that these hunters, I don't remember where it is in the world, they hunt these specific types of monkeys. And the way that these monkeys are too fast to catch and they want to catch them alive. And the way that they catch these monkeys is they create these little traps and they're these little there are these little containers that are tied to a tree and inside the container is something shiny or a piece of fruit or something that that monkey will want and, it, and, and it's, it's big enough that when the monkey grasps that thing, when the monkey slips its hands through the opening of the container and grabs hold of that thing, now the monkey's fist has made too big of a shape to pull out. So the monkey's hand that, was, that could easily fit in to grab it cannot get out because it's holding it. And it's this tremendous picture of what sin and temptation does to us. All the monkey has to do is let go, and it would be free. But the captors, the hunters, can literally walk up to the monkey and get it because the monkey will not let go of that shiny thing or that piece of fruit. And we're just like that. We grab hold of things, and it's the things that we hold on to that actually hold us captive and bound. And that's the danger of temptation. My friend, Pastor Dan Williams at North Central Church, he says it this way. He, sa- he, he uses a fishing illustration. He says, when it comes to temptation, the bait is fake, but the hook is real. The bait is fake. Look at me. Look what I'll do for you. I'll satisfy your heart. I'll give you everything you've been looking for. I'll make you feel loved. I'll make you feel accepted. I'll make you feel powerful. The bait is fake, but then when you go for it, you find out the hook is real. And it has you. And this is the danger of temptation. One final thought on temptation before we get to our last point is this. That temptation is not just doing bad things. Temptation is actually when we don't want to do what we know we should do. Good things. James talks about this. He says if you know what you should do and you don't do it, it's actually a sin to you. So the question for some of us this morning is not what are the bad things out there that I'm doing. It's what are the good opportunities that God has given me that I'm not obeying him and walking in. Some of you have resources, time, gifts that other people need, that the church needs. And if you don't exercise those gifts, use those gifts, offer those gifts, the resources, the time, the words, the kind words, the friendship, the hospitality. If we're not doing those things, then that's actually a form of giving and temptation too. We're holding on to things that God has given us to bless others with. So the nature of temptation. Last point this morning is this. What is I know it's been mostly bad news so far. We'll end with some good news. What is the way out of temptation? A couple weeks ago, my family and I were in uh, Massachusetts for vacation, and we were in some beaches in Gloucester. And um, we, have, um, we brought our beach furniture out there, and, and we have this umbrella that we bought at Five Below like five years ago, and it still works. And it's the best investment I've ever made in my life, I think. And so we have this $5 umbrella, and we bring it to the beach, and it's a bright blue umbrella with pink flamingos all over it. It's very visible on the beach, very visible from the water. And, and, and my girls and their cousins are out in the water. And if you've been to the ocean, you know how the tide works, right? How, like, you can start here, but within 10 minutes, you're down there. 
right? Because it keeps, the waves keep moving you over and over and over. And these waves where we were at were not as strong as some of the waves we've been at in other places like on the coast of Jersey, but they were pretty strong. And at one point I looked up and I couldn't see my girls. That's a moment of panic as a, as a dad and you, you can't see your kids in the ocean. And so I looked down and they were over there and they were having fun, but they were no longer in my line of sight. And so I got up and I walked on the beach and I went over and I said, girls, you need to come on back over, come back over. I said, you see the, you see the umbrella? with the pink flamingo, like you don't lose sight of that umbrella. That's your landmark. Don't lose sight of it. And the way out of temptation, the way from drifting away is to not lose sight of the right things. And the first thing that we have to never lose sight of is what's at stake. In that moment of temptation for Joseph, what was at stake? Listen, Joseph, by God's sovereign choosing, had a call on his life. And God is gonna use Joseph, we'll see this in the next few weeks, to save an empire. Joseph's seemingly insignificant life was gonna be used to save Egypt and perhaps more importantly, to save his family who would come to Egypt as they were starving on the verge of dying of starvation. Joseph would be the one who would be used by God to save a nation. And somehow Joseph knew, I think, what was at stake. He may not have fully understood, but remember, Joseph was a dreamer. And he had these dreams. And when temptation comes your way and wants to give you something cheap, you remind temptation, God's got a purpose for my life. God's got a plan for my life. God's got a call on me. And the things he has for me are way too important for me to give my dreams up for this. Way too important for me to cash in God's call on my life for temporary pleasure. Don't lose sight of what's at stake uh, husbands and wives, be faithful to one another, love one another, serve one another, because what's at stake? Your children are at stake. You know, your, your grandchildren are at stake. Your families, there's so much at stake when we, when we give in to sin. So don't lose sight of what's at stake. Secondly, don't lose sight of who your sin is actually against. Yes, if Joseph um, had, had done this, he would have sinned against Potiphar, but Joseph himself knew and said in the verses that we read, it would be a great sin against God. Every sin we do is first and foremost against God. And sin is not just breaking God's rules, it's breaking God's heart. It's breaking a relationship with God to build a relationship with something less and something else. All sin is against God first and foremost. So I'm gonna ask the band to come up and join me. We're gonna sing and take communion in just a moment. But the last thing I wanna say is this. Don't lose sight of who has gone before you. Don't lose sight of who has gone before you. The rest of the story, we're not going to read it, but let me tell it to you. It's a little bit predictable. Potiphar's wife is spurned, so what does she do? She tells a lie. She calls the other servants in and she says, look at what Joseph tried to do to me. She's holding his robe in her hand. He came in here. He tried to take advantage of me. I fought him off. I screamed, and he ran. How could he do this? And she's mad at, she's, she's actually telling a lie about, she's actually like pointing the finger at Potiphar too. Potiphar brought this Hebrew into our house and he's making a mockery of us all. So Potiphar catches wind of this. He gets back and he's, as you would expect any husband to be, absolutely furious. And so Joseph, at the end of chapter 39, he's in a prison cell. Joseph, who's already been in the bottom of a pit 
where if you think about the irony of this is that when he went into the pit, his robe was used to tell a lie about him. And here again, his robe is being used to tell a lie about him. He's in the bottom of the pit. He thinks it can't get any lower. Then he begins to succeed in this home. And he's thinking, finally, life is better. And now he's a, he doesn't give in to temptation. He obeys God. He commits no crime. He is, he is wrongly accused. And despite the fact that he's completely innocent, now he's in an Egyptian prison, which I guarantee you is nothing like the prisons that people are in in our country today. Innocent, wrongly accused, but suffering. And when we get to the end of the story here in chapter 39, it causes us to think about the only true innocent sufferer, Jesus, who never sinned, who never did a single thing wrong, but at a farce of a trial, he was convicted to death on the cross a death that was reserved for the worst criminals given to the perfect, sinless Son of God. And Jesus did this for you and I. I want you to see this verse in Romans chapter 12. Paul says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a huge crowd of witnesses to the life of faith, think about the people who are watching you, both on earth and in heaven. This is really, I don't know how this works exactly. I don't know if people in heaven see, I don't, I don't know, the Bible doesn't say. But this idea of, of the huge crowd of witnesses, Paul's talking about people who have gone before us. But we also have a huge crowd of witnesses around us. Your neighbors are watching you, your friends are watching you, your family is watching you, your church is supporting you, we're standing with you, we're cheering you on as you run your race. But somehow the people that have gone before you are cheering you on and rooting for you. Let us strip off every weight that slows us down, especially the sin that so easily trips us up. When Paul uses this word especially, what it means is that what he describes previously is not sin, right? Strip off every weight that slows us down, especially sin. So what is he talking about here? What he's teaching us here is very important for disciples of Jesus to understand. Not every unwise decision is a sinful decision. There's a difference between right and wrong and wise and unwise. And we need to learn as disciples of Jesus not just to strip off sin, but to strip off the things that slow us down. And John Piper, Pastor John Piper, when he was preaching on this verse, he said so many times disciples of Jesus asked themselves this question about a, a pathway, an opportunity, a, a, an activity, a, a form of behavior. They asked this question, is it sin? And if it's not sin, then I'm free to enjoy it and embrace it. And Piper says, don't ask the question, is it sin? Ask the question, does it help me run? Does it help me run? And if it isn't going to help you run, it's going to slow you down. Some of us, we're doing some things. we got some rhythms in our lives. Maybe it's, maybe it's how much entertainment we, we are consuming. Maybe it's the way in which we are uh, in, um, engaged in some relationships. But, but, but some of us are not in sin but there's some things that we can leave behind this morning and say, it doesn't help me run. It doesn't help me run the race. And let us run with endurance the race God has set before us. And I love this. He says, the Jesus here, let's go to the next verse. We do this by keeping our eyes. Do not lose sight of Jesus, the one who went before us, the champion who initiates and perfects our faith. Jesus, the author and the finisher, from beginning to end, it's Jesus. It's all of Jesus. We're not saved by our efforts, by our strength, by our morality, by our spirituality. We're saved by placing our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, who because of the joy awaiting him, Jesus 
pushed aside all temptation to endure the cross, discarding its shame. Now Jesus is seated in the place of honor beside God's throne. Verse 3, think of all the hostility, think of all the temptation, think of all the tests that Jesus endured from sinful people so that you will not grow weary and give up and give in to temptation. There is a great cloud of witnesses. Many have gone before you as your example, but only one has gone before you as your substitute. I don't know if you've been watching the Olympics at all. I've been trying to. It's tricky this year because of the time difference. I don't know if I'm watching stuff live or from two days ago. But I, I love the Olympics. I always like to. I always joke that the, the the thing about the Olympics is it makes us care about events and sports we literally haven't thought about in four years. So last night I'm watching water polo like I'm a huge fan, and I haven't thought about water polo since the last Olympics. But I'm screaming my screaming and I go, go come on go. The Olympics this year are in Tokyo, and because of COVID, no fans and family can be there. So it's strange, right? They're in empty stadiums doing these different things. But one of the cool things that's come out of this year's Olympics is the footage of family and friends gathered in houses and backyards, and they're watching. I want you to look at this clip. This is a, 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 a swimmer from Britain. His name was Tom Dean, and he won the gold in the 400 meter. And this, this is his family. These are his friends, and they're watching on a big TV, and you can see their excitement, and, and it's building, and it's building. And you'll be able to tell the moment that he touches that wall, and they realize that he won the gold medal because there's this explosion of energy and celebration and hugging and screaming and tears. And when I was watching this, just this moment here where they finally get to it, and he touches the wall, and they get excited and they begin to scream. I thought of this verse. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a huge crowd of witnesses to the life of faith, let us strip off everything that slows us down and the sin that so easily entangles us because heaven itself is cheering you on. Heaven itself is excited and waiting with anticipation for all that God has for you here and there. And from beginning to end, it's the grace of God. It's Jesus, the faithful one. Let's pray together.